Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Dr. Michael Mann, a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State. With joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He also directs the Penn State Earth System Science Center. Mann is the author of several books, including his most recent work, The Madhouse Effect, which features cartoons by Pulitzer Prize winning political cartoonist Tom Tolles. We talk about the politics of climate change in the Trump era and Dr. Mann's new satirical book about this deadly serious topic. I read in some of your materials that you're labeled as cautiously optimistic about the climate change situation, even though our current administration is full of climate deniers. Can can you explain that? Yeah. So, I mean, there certainly are some challenges that we face right now uh, when it comes to uh, acting uh, on climate change in, in the United States. We have a president who rejects the scientific evidence that climate change is real and human caused, and he's appointed, uh, you know, individuals to a key um, appointments within his uh, cabinet um, who reject the the science of climate change. Um, That makes it very difficult to uh, envision sort of uh, executive um, actions, presidential um, uh, sort of leadership um, uh, on climate in the near future. Uh, And similarly, um, the current uh, Congress is led by individuals who, again, reject the science of climate change and or don't see any need to act on the problem, to incentivize renewable energy, to move away from fossil fuels. Um, So we have to sort of turn our attention elsewhere if we're looking for sort of reasons, uh, again, for cautious optimism. And there are uh, such reasons. If you look at what the states are doing, the West Coast states, the New England states, now Virginia and New Jersey has joined in. Um, uh, There are efforts at the state level um, to uh, regulate uh, carbon emissions, to put a price on carbon, to incentivize renewable energy. Uh, Many of our largest cities are moving forward. And so even though uh, President uh, Donald Trump has threatened to basically back out of the the Paris Accord, this international agreement to limit carbon emissions that was so important. Um, uh, Well, even if he were to nominally do that, if you look at all the progress that's taking place at the city level, at the state level, um, if you look at what businesses are doing and the sustainability practices that we're seeing, uh, you know, with our largest uh, corporations, um, we will likely meet our obligations under the Paris uh, Agreement uh, with or without uh, Donald Trump. So there you are. You know, the rest of the world is moving forward. And even here in the U.S., where our president has threatened to 
um, I could pull out of Paris, uh, we're likely to, to meet our obligations. Um, that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is that even if all of the nations of the world meet their obligations under Paris, that doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't limit warming below uh, dangerous levels, um, which we often sort of point to two degrees uh, Celsius or three and a half degree Fahrenheit warming of the planet as constituting truly dangerous and irreversible climate change. The Paris Accord won't get us there. It won't get us to limiting below that level, but it'll get us about halfway there, which means that at least it starts to get us on this path where we can envision, you know, a few years, uh, if we ratchet up um, those commitments uh, from the various participating countries, uh, we can see our way to limiting warming below dangerous levels. So it's still possible. The only obstacle is indeed uh, willpower at this point. If we look at the economics uh, of of this and uh, the Chinese really coming into the alternative energy yeah. uh, modalities, this seems to be really a, a, not a wise economic decision from the current administration. No, that's exactly right. Look, the rest of the world recognizes that uh, clean energy is the great economic revolution of this century, and they're trying to um, – get ahead. Uh, they're trying to be out in front. Uh, China is investing more money in renewable energy than any other country in the world and, and is profiting from that. Uh, and other countries that are jumping on board now are, 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 are basically gaining um, uh, in competitiveness in the international marketplace. So here in the United States, ironically, by, you know, by sort of moving in the wrong direction under the current uh, congressional policies and under uh, the current uh, president and his policies. Um, while the rest of the world is moving ahead, we're moving in the wrong direction. We're moving backwards uh, away from uh, renewable energy, uh, back towards uh, coal, um, other fossil fuel uh, sources of energy. Um, that, you know, those those sources of energy, the age of fossil fuels is, is ending, and we're entering into a new age, the age of renewable energy. And those countries that get out in front, um, you know, with regard to that transition, are going to be the, the leading economies of the world. And we risk right now sacrificing our competitiveness in the global market uh, because of our policies, because of our uh, backward-looking policies right now. And putting a human face on this in, in this region, our, our region here, uh, we have so many ex-coal miners that uh, took hope that their coal mining jobs would be coming back. Yeah. Uh, probably not coming back, even uh, alternative uh, forms of energy and oil and gas. But but instead of retraining and, and looking at future energy options, they're hanging on to this thread. Yeah. No, and, it's, and it's really sad. It's here in Pennsylvania, too. I uh, go out into communities. I speak to uh, communities, particularly in the southwestern part of our state, um, uh, where, which are uh, very much steeped in the tradition of coal. Um, um, I've talked to kids who come from uh, coal mining families, uh, and it, it's, it's uh, sad what's happened there. Um, and, you know, our coal workers are, are, are truly victims. They're victims of 
sort of this, um, you know, first of all, an industry that never really seemed to care too much about um, its workers uh, right. and their health conditions and getting respectable wage. Um, so they've always been treated poorly. And, and now, um, rather than, you know, providing them, as you allude to, with the resources they need to, to make sure that as this industry disappears, and it is disappearing, you know, industries disappear, whaling <laughs> disappeared, whale oil, we used to rely on whale oil for energy, and something right. better came along that was fossil fuels. Well, you know, now something better than fossil fuels has come along, that's renewable energy, and, um, and, and the coal industry... Um, you know, is increasingly not competitive. Um, coal is not competitive against other sources of energy, uh, natural gas, uh, but increasingly renewable energy. As, you know, the economies of scale set in, as we see, you know, greater innovation and technological um, development in renewable energy, um, uh, it's coming down in price and it's going to outcompete coal. Um, and that's particularly true if we require coal burning to be clean, to not put carbon into the atmosphere. Um, if we were to try to level the, the playing field, uh, as it were, um, because, you know, burning fossil fuels damages the planet by putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and warming it and, and generating climate change, dangerous climate change. Um, so if we were to level the, the playing field by putting a price on carbon, well, then that, that would make um, fossil fuels, including coal, even less competitive. But even without that, um, they're losing their competitiveness. We need to make sure that we find jobs for the folks who are displaced, and in particular, that their children, that their kids can you know, have the resources, the education um, that they need to move on into other fields and to be successful. And uh, that's the American dream. And uh, sadly, right now, our, our policies, by promising the coal industry something that we can't promise, President Trump has promised to bring back coal. That defies the laws of economics. It's not going to happen. And it's a false promise. It holds out false hope for these people when indeed they need to be thinking about how to make sure that they and their children can move forward in this new global marketplace. I think the integration of problems is something that people don't really see. I'm sure you do. You have a, a small community in Appalachia, as we have many in in this region, that are really ghost communities because yeah. the extractive industries have gone away. The people have not been retrained. They're holding on to their, this dream. Their children are. But then we have the rise of the opioid crisis in, yeah. The, yeah. in those communities and other things that come along with unemployment. It seems that they're all integrated. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, and I have some personal experience here. My mother grew up in a town called Catanning, uh, just outside of uh, Pittsburgh, and it's a Rust Belt town. Um, and you know, the the younger folks have moved away. Um, it's it's sad to to see that happen, um, but there are these larger scale trends, um, and. You know, the, we are seeing this decay, um, and you know, in the in the Rust Belt, where the, there isn't the, they don't have the resources necessary to retrain, to find jobs in in new places where jobs are available, to make sure that their kids can go off to college uh, and be competitive. Uh, you know, as they go out into the job market, um, and when you, and it's it's a vicious cycle because when you see. No reason for optimism when, 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 when you have no hope 
um, um, and you, you've given up, then it's all too easy to, to turn to, you know, to uh, opioids and, and, and drugs um, and drinking um, to, you know, to, to somehow assuage um, your, your suffering. Uh, that's, and, and of course, when that happens, that's a downward spiral because then what money you do have, you're spending on these substances, um, you're unable to work, uh, you're unable to provide for your children to make sure that they go on to, you know, to college. Um, it's, it's, it's a terrible downward spiral. And, and sadly, you know, our, our president promised to do something about that. But he, he hasn't. His policies, if anything, have sucked more and more resources from those communities and sort of uh, transported those resources up to the top, to the, the folks who, who, who don't need them, really. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I know you're a serious scholar, Dr. Mann. You've had over 200 peer-reviewed papers. Uh, You've written now your third book, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. And in that book, you teamed up with a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist, Tom Tolles, from The Washington Post. People have characterized this book as sort of a satire. So so yeah. tell us about the book and from your serious scholar point of view, why <laughs> you why you took this tactic to talk about yeah. the, these issues. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, I'm I'm a scientist and a professor here at Penn State, and that's an important part of my, my life. But I, I'm also very passionate about communicating science to the public, communicating the science of climate change and its implications. Um, it's not really what I had set out to do when I decided to become, you know, to double major in applied math and physics and went on to graduate school in physics and then into climate science, doing climate modeling. Um, I didn't think that this was a career trajectory that would place me at the center of one of the most fractious, you know, societal debates we've ever had. But because of this uh, iconic 
graph that we published back in the late 1990s called the hockey stick. Um, it became sort of an icon in the climate change debate because it demonstrates just how profound the uh, warming of the past century is, how unprecedented it is in a long-term context. Um, and it really drives home the, the reality uh, of human-caused climate change. And that sort of made me a target for uh, groups, for individuals, uh, organizations that have been looking to discredit the case for concern about climate change. And they targeted me, um, and that sort of forced me out of the, the <laughs> lab, <laughs> sort of forced me out of the lab into the public sphere um, to, in, in essence, to defend myself and to defend the science of climate change. And over time, I grew to embrace that role. So this isn't the role that I saw for myself, but ultimately, it's the role that I found myself in. And um, I you know, consider myself privileged to be in a position to do that. And so I'm always looking for new ways to communicate um, this problem to the public. Increasingly, we've become balkanized in terms of our sort of politics and our uh, tribal sort of identities, our ideologies, um, which makes it difficult to reach some people. Um, they, some people are sort of trapped in this bubble of misinformation where, you know, they watch television, uh, cable networks, and they present an alternative reality. If you watch Fox News or read the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, you would think that, um, you know, the the, the, the uh, entire uh, physics, <laughs> uh, the, the world of physics that I know it must be wrong because right. they, they, they reject sort of the overwhelming uh, evidence, which really is based on simple physics, that uh, we're warming the planet um, and, and creating climate change. And so they get trapped in this sort of bubble, and it's very difficult to sort of penetrate through that bubble, to barge through the front door with facts and figures and data, because it's become so ideological, so tribal, that they'll just reject that. They'll say, oh, that's fake facts, right? Fake news. Um, I, I don't believe your figures. I don't care if it's the National Science Foundation. I don't care if it's the National Academy of Sciences or Nature or Science Magazine. There's this rejection of expertise. There's this rejection of sort of, of academia and even of the scientific uh, community. And that makes it increasingly important for us to find at, at times sort of side doors. The front door is closed. So we've got to look for side doors to, to get to some of these folks. And one of those side doors is satire, is humor. Often there are topics that we're able to talk about, frankly, when we frame them satirically, humorously, that would be very difficult to talk about otherwise. And I think that's part of why some of our hardest hitting commentary today, political commentary, comes in the form of com comedy shows, Colbert, Bill Maher, Samantha Bee, um, John Oliver. Um, there, there's a reason for that. And of course, Tom Tolles, the editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post, has been doing some of the hardest hitting commentary about climate change denial for years in his cartoons um, on the editorial pages of the Washington Post. And so when the opportunity came along to me to, to work together with him, to take Tom's cartoons and then try to use my expertise um, as, a, as a climate scientist who's interested in communication, sort of unpack those cartoons. To so use his cartoons to tell the story, the story about science, how does it work, what about climate change, what's the scientific evidence, what are the impacts, what can we do about it? What are the politics that are preventing us from acting on this? So Tom's cartoon sort of formed the scaffolding, and then I sort of tried to provide context to sort of uh, connect it all together in the form of this book. And it was a delightful project, or as delightful as a project can be when you're talking about, you know, 
one of the most serious threats that that we face. But um, but in a sense, you know, it 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 was um, cathartic to be able to use humor <laughs> to be able to use humor to talk about a, a pretty serious topic. And and you you do it very very well. Uh, well it, it's 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 really an interesting uh, concept. But uh, I think you uh, will certainly attract more audience. Has that been your feeling as well? Yeah, I think so. I think there is you know there is an audience for um, for humor and satire. There always has been. You know, back to the, the days of Jonathan Swift, and right. Mark Twain. You know, the the greatest. Uh, rhetoricists, um, the greatest um, speakers, the greatest communicators in human history um, often used humor and satire um, to make their points. I think there's something deep in the human psyche um, that really makes that an appealing way. It, 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 It makes it a little more comfortable to talk about things that are otherwise difficult to talk about. And uh, so hopefully we, we've accomplished that in this book. Hopefully we'll reach some, some folks who thus far haven't yet been reached by just the message of what the science has to say. So are you going to take up a, a, a tactic that Tom Tolls has where he goes on YouTube and reads uh, tweets and, and various <laughs> hate mail about his cartoons and then tries to explain them, <laughs> which well, you know, t- digs it deeper most of the time? Yeah, you know, uh, God love him. Tom is a is just a, an amazing person, amazing individual, and I, I just think uh, he has a temperament <laughs> that allows him to do something like that because it's tough, right? It's tough. It to, really to, is. To, to do that. Um, and, and there are times when I'll do that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty active on social media, and I'll have a little fun here and there sometimes on on Twitter. Uh, you know, with uh, some the the latest critique or the latest attack. Um, you know. You have to, um, you know, sometimes the best way to deal with those things is t- with some levity, <laughs> again, yeah, with, right. with some humor. Um, it's a way to sort of deflect, but at the same time, um, re-steer the conversation in the direction uh, you want to take it. So, you know, uh, um, when Taylor Swift, uh, you know, sings about, sh- you know, shake it off, uh, you know, and she's talking about the haters and how you deal with the haters and you shake, shake them off uh, and you have some fun with it, uh, as she has with that song and that video. That's I right. think that's a big part of it. Yeah. One last question. We talked about the, the executive branch pretty much uh, through President Trump's uh, group of, of deniers. Uh, yeah. We didn't talk about the congressional role in, in yeah. this. Could you speak to that just for a moment? Sure. Uh, because, of course, Trump you know, draws a lot of the attention um, uh, when it comes to the sort of denialism of climate change um, and inaction on climate. But in fact, our Congress right now is every bit as culpable because they have um, basically supported uh, his policies. Um, they have refused to you know, introduce climate legislation. Um, the uh, you know, the, the uh, Republican um, uh, platform um, ha- was tweaked a little bit in the last election. It no longer outright denies the reality of climate change as it did before. Uh, it takes on a stance that uh, is what I call the, the, the kinder, gentler <laughs> form right. of denial, which is to say that you accept the science, but in fact to, to really downplay 
um, the magnitude of the problem and to argue that uh, we'll either find some simple techno fix, um, it will engineer our way out of it by doing something else to the planet, uh, what could possibly go wrong, and we have a chapter on that called geoengineering or what could possibly go wrong if we start tinkering with the planet in other ways to, to try to offset uh, the effects of climate change, uh, potential huge potential unintended consequences. And so, or that, you know, we'll just grow the economy and it'll magically solve uh, the problem on its own. Um, anything but doing the necessary work of cutting our carbon emissions and incentivizing policies that will do that. So really our Congress right now has enabled the, the sort of um, inaction that is, uh, you know, the currently the, uh, uh, sort of uh, characterizes the, the current administration as well. Um, fortunately, you know, in less than a year, we do have these midterm elections. If people decide that they, they don't like the way their local, you know, representative is voting on these issues, that they don't feel that, uh, you know, their, their, their politicians are representing their interests, that instead they're representing the interests of, you know, powerful fossil fuel companies that fund their campaigns. People have a voice. They, 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 they have a voice at the, you know, voting booth. They can go and express, you know, their priorities. Um, and, they're and, and in less than 300 days, the American people are going to have an opportunity to do that. So that's the wonderful thing about America, about our political system, that there's always an opportunity for change if people uh, feel that change is appropriate. And, and I think there probably is uh, quite a bit of sentiment right now uh, behind uh, the need for a shift away from our current policies. Dr. Mann, best of luck with your book and your continued scholarship. It was a delight to talk with you. It was a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Michael Mann, scholar and author about the politics of climate change under the Trump administration. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum is also available at the NPR podcast directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 